Beloved, yesterday I was curious how many sermons that we've been in Hebrew. So I went on our website and counted them. Uh, this is, this morning will be the 43rd sermon out of Hebrews. Uh, we began March last year. I opened with a uh, kind of an introduction summary. Did 31 sermons through the first 10 chapters, which if you do the complex math, that's a little over an average of three per chapter. Uh, this will be the 11th sermon out of Hebrews chapter 11. And the question might be is, what's at work here? Well, beloved, the reason is God provides for us. God provided for the original audience of Jewish believers. God provides for you and me, for anyone that opens the word of God, any child of God in any land, tongue, tribe, or nation at any point in time with this great symphony of examples for our blessing, for our benefit. And what the author does in our passage this morning, beginning in verse 32, is he culminates in a crescendo of final examples. Final examples of men and women who displayed amazing faith. Because of God's amazing grace, they had an amazing faith. A faith, a grace, a grace that taught our heart to fear and a grace that our fears relieved. We see these men and women from the Old Testament times display courage in the face of fear. They suspended their fear of man and elevated their fear of God for his glory. And the ones that are valorized here, these men and women, these are men and women who didn't merely follow a path. These are men and women that went where there was no path and they left a trail in their wake for any child of God to get at any point in time to learn from. Now, I'm going to read verses 32 through 38. This is part one of men and women of valor. And this morning, we're going to go through the very beginning of verse 35. And what you will see, what you may pick up, is a very significant shift right in the middle of verse 35. Because for the child of God, whether it's the saved person under the old covenant, like these men and women were, or the saved son or daughter, born-again believer under the new covenant, there are times of prosperity and there are times of want. There are triumphs of faith and there are tribulations of faith. Biblical faith, saving faith, both conquers and is courageous. And in the economy of God, in the providence of God, according to the good plan of God, some live and some die. Some live by faith, others die by faith. What you see, what we see in the middle of verse 35 and forward are rejections, tortures, imprisonments, and even brutal deaths. Because again, the biblical saving faith displays its unconquerable character despite the circumstance, despite the lot in life. And even what we see here is how one good sovereign God oversees all, both the triumphs and the tribulations. Beloved, please listen as I read the passage that we have here. Again, I'm going to begin in verse 32 through verse 38. This is the word of God. The author, pastor, preacher writes, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. 
And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on our hearts. Beloved, this is the word of God. Now, because of the depth and the riches of all these references, we easily could have a year-long series, could have a two-long series just on the riches and the background and the history and the sovereign outworking of God in his plan of redemption. We're not going to do that here this morning. This week and next week, we're going to have a 10,000-foot flyby of this biblical history lesson. So even this sermon here this morning will be a little more like a biblical history lesson than a traditional sermon because that is the text that we have before us. And what we see here in the first Two and a half verses of this, excuse me, first three and a half verses, 32 through the middle of verse 35, is we see men of valor, acts of valor, men of valor in verse 32, acts, their acts of valor in verses 33 and 34. And at the beginning of verse 35, we see women of valor. We'll only touch the third point very briefly this morning, and we'll pick it up with the introduction of the rest of this passage next Sunday. And one thing we should understand from this, and we know this from even the previous examples that we've encountered here in Hebrews chapter 11, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, and going on from there, but especially when we come to these examples here, the named examples is these are not your typical Sunday school moralistic heroes and examples. These men had feet of clay, as do you, as do I. And this is a list because of this. This is a list of people that are meaningful to us and a list of people who are accessible to us because these are people who are like us. These are people who are like us. And what's fascinating here is the author doesn't remember them for their fears and failures. He remembers them for their fortitude and their faith. So first we see in verse 32, the men of valor. And what the author brings to us here are judges, kings, and prophets. As we've been going through Hebrews 11, he began with Abel, and he spent a good amount of time on the first half, all the way up through Abraham, the first half of the book of Genesis. And then in three verses, he went through the latter portion of the book of Genesis, and he picked up Exodus, and going forward all the way up to Joshua. Now what he does here is he brings to our attention judges, kings, and prophets. And the author begins verse 32, look at the text. He says, and what more shall I say, for time will fail me if I tell of. This is, I I read this and I say, brother preacher, I feel your pain. I understand what you're dealing with here. This is his version of in conclusion. And what he's really saying here is the examples given heretofore, the examples The illustrations that have already been provided are sufficient to drive home the point that you, we are saved by faith alone. In the same way those under the old covenant were, even before the coming of Jesus Christ, even before his sinless life, his voluntary death and his resurrection from the grave, men and women of God in the Old Testament were saved by faith alone. And the examples that the author has given in the first 31 verses is sufficient to prove this. But leave it to a preacher to find something more to say. And the story is told of a preacher who, after an especially long sermon, asks the question, what more could I say? And a helpful person in the congregation said, how about amen? (laughs) Now, you're not allowed to do this, but. And, And those of you who teach, especially those of you who preach, know that you leave way more on the desk than you bring to the pulpit. And even by way of reminders, we've gone through Hebrews earlier when he talks about those of us mature in the faith that by now we ought to be teachers that every believer here has a teaching ministry. Some frail, fallible men have a teaching ministry from the pulpit. We have teaching ministries from the different platforms. Godly women in our women's ministry. Titus 2 women who come alongside older, or excuse me, younger women and encourage them from the word. Every believer here, even if you're evangelizing a friend of yours in a coffee shop, you have some level of teaching ministry. And so there is always an element of leaving more at the desk than we bring 
bring to the table. And one thing you will note here as well, this is the first time here in verse 32, the first time in this whole letter, where the author refers to himself with the first person singular pronoun. It's the first appearance of that little one letter word, I. Because, and what a beautiful example it is for all of us, whatever our teaching ministry may entail of, what a great reminder that we are not the point. It is always about God. Even when we give our testimonies, as we are blessed in the men's ministry at our men's big breakfast, and at whatever level, when we give our testimony, we remember that we are not the point. Jesus Christ, the one to whom we look, he is the point. He is the emphasis. And while God has chosen the foolishness of preaching, borrowing Paul's language from 1 Corinthians, while he has chosen the foolishness of preaching as primary means of corporate worship and part of preaching is personal flair. Beloved, beware the preacher who is always the hero of his own story. If that's the case, find another pulpit to listen to. But in any event, we have a flyby of the men of valor before our flyby of their acts of valor. Again, judges, kings, and prophets. In verse 32, he says, Time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and of Barak and Samson and Jephthah, four judges, four judges. These are men from the period of the judges and then with David and Samuel from the early monarchy. And all of these joined together with and the prophets take us from the end of Joshua all the way to the rest of the end of the Bible, the completion of the Bible that they had in their hands at the time of this writing, what we would call the Old Testament. And by way of review, we know that beginning in verse 9, the author dealt with Abraham for a length of time. And then he cast kind of a rapid fire, one verse at a time of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And then he deals with Moses at greater length. And then he goes back to the one verse at a time dealing with the people of Israel through the Red Sea and the people of Israel marching around Jericho. And then he finishes the singular examples with Rahab the harlot. But what he does now is he rockets forward to the very end of the Old Testament, the very end of the Old Testament. He kicks it into high gear with a sweeping panorama of great vistas of God's redemptive purpose all the way through the Bible. And as we will see, perhaps even a little bit beyond, a little bit past even the end of Malachi and before the coming of Christ. But he begins with Judges. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, the book of Judges, judges were rulers who brought justice. Their leadership and wisdom put them in a position of authority over the life and land in Israel. And another thing you may know from the book of Judges is these men who were judges were far, far from perfect examples. He begins with Gideon. We see Gideon back in Judges 6 through 8. Gideon was Israel's champion against the Midianites. Our introduction to Gideon is in chapter 6 verse 11 where we read, then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah which belonged to Joash the Abizrite as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. And then our initial introduction to Gideon, when you read on from there, we see that Gideon responded that when God called him from this normal work that he was doing and said, You are my chosen man who will be the valiant warrior that will lead my people against the enemies, against my enemies, the Midianites, Gideon basically responds with cowardice. He says, I, I'm just a simple man. I can't do this. In fact, down in verse 27, it says it came about because he was too afraid. Right in the middle of verse 27 of Judges 6, Gideon was too afraid of his father's household. You see, because Gideon didn't have initially sufficient fear of the Lord, because of that, he had fear of man. So right from the get-go, we see that he is shrinking away at the thought of leading God's people. But as we continue to read through chapter 6 and chapter 7, God meets his trembling heart with revelation. Twice through a fleece, 
that was laid out on the ground and then once through a dream in chapter 7, verses 9 through 15. And then finally, in chapter 7, Gideon takes 300 men of God's choice and he conquers, God conquers through 301 men, 300 men plus Gideon, 135,000 Midianites. 135,000 Bedouin Midianites. Because, in part, the men are armed to the teeth. They're armed to the teeth with earthenware jars, torches, and trumpets. I don't think they teach that in military school. Beloved, the point there, the point that God is driving home is to be sure, human responsibility that he lays out before Gideon, a right response of faith. But God is the one who wins the battle. God is the one who ultimately carries the burden. And another point I do want to bring out in Judges chapter 6, verse 25 through 32, what we see there is even before the engaging of this battle, there is an internal cleansing that is necessary. Mark this. Internal cleansing is always necessary before external victory. That's true at the individual level. That was true for the case of Gideon. He had to be internally cleansed of his cowardly fear of man before he could be in a position to have his external victory. And so also for the nation of Israel, what you read in verses 25 through 32 was they had altars of Baal in the nation. And so before the nation of Israel would engage in the combat with the Midianites, they had to cleanse those altars of Baal from the land because again internal cleansing is needed before the external victory and beloved dear friend that is the same for us as well we must have an internal cleansing a sanctification before our external victory now we don't wage war on the battlefield on a physical battlefield the way the nation of Israel did but we are to be sure engaged in a holy war of the Lord beginning first with our own sanctification our own purity So Gideon was the first judge, the author of Hebrews references. Then he goes to Barak. Barak was Israel's champion against the Canaanites, who the Canaanites Canaanites were being led by a mighty general named Sisera with a massive armada of armored chariots. And for the nation of Israel to go against the general Sisera with their armored chariots, that would be like an army of soldiers who were equipped with BB guns going on the battlefield against an army of soldiers equipped with AK-47s. Again, it sets a situation where one knows and understands that the battle begins and the battle ends with and the battle belongs to the Lord. And of course, Barak is also a tremendously flawed man. He's a cowardly man. You actually have to go back to Judges 4 and 5. Probably what we see when we look at the six examples that the author of Hebrews gives us in verse 32, probably flowing from his Hebrew line of reasoning, which is Hebrew, so it's a little more circular than an Occidental linear form of reasoning. He doesn't list the judges and then even David and Samuel in chronological order. He places Gideon and then Barak, but Barak came before Gideon. And then he says Samson and Jephthah, even though Jephthah came before Samson. And then he says David and Samuel, who, although they were contemporaries, we are introduced in 1 Samuel to Samuel before we are introduced to David. But be that as it may, when we go back to Judges chapter 4, we're introduced to Barak. And Barak is also a very flawed man himself. There's a prophetess named Deborah that is introduced. And when God tells Barak that he is to go and he is to be the one to lead the nation of Israel to war, in verse 8 of Judges 4, Barak says to Deborah, if you'll go with me, then I'll go. But if you won't go with me, I won't go. And she said, Deborah here is more godly and she has a better understanding of God's role and hierarchy and even God's order of things than Barak does at this point. Deborah says to him in verse 9, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor will not be yours on the journey that you're about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. 
You see, Deborah understood she was being used by God, but she understood that from the Garden of Eden and forward, God had a hierarchical role in relationship. Even in the midst of the equality of men and women, that the man is supposed to be the one to lead the war. So again, this is just a brief snapshot that we see just like Gideon, so also Barak was a leader with feet of clay, yet the author of Hebrews cites him as an example of faith in the victory that comes over the Canaanites and the mighty general Sisera going forward. And then, of course, in chapter 5, you have the beautiful song of Deborah and Barak. And even a woman named Jael in verse 24, most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed is she of women in the tent. He asked for water. That's Sisera, the general, the Midianite general, asked for water, excuse me, the Canaanite general, and she gave him milk. In a magnificent bowl, she brought him curds. She reached out her hand for the tent peg and her right hand for the workman's hammer. Then she struck Sisera, she smashed his head, and she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay. Between her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell dead. And when we read earlier, we saw that she took the tent peg and drove it through his skull all the way into the ground. And so at the end of verse 27, I guess the author just reaffirms to us that if you have a tent peg driven through your skull into the ground, you'll end up dead. <laughs> well, then we go from Barak to Samson. And again, this is the economy of God. God is holy and right. He uses godly men and godly women in his God-prescribed order and even makes allowance for areas outside of that for his glory. But he tells us what we need to know. Samson, back in the list, Samson, this is Israel's champion against the Philistines. The Philistines were a highly intelligent and highly civilized warrior culture. They were a vicious culture of warrior people who knew how to fight. And you can read the entirety of Samson in Judges 13 through 16. Of course, Samson is most well known for his mighty feats of strength. I thought of this even this week. My powerlifting strongman son, Zachary, posted a video of he's moving in, he and his beautiful wife, Rachel, and my granddaughter, Arya, and my grandson, Noah, are moving into a new house. And Zachary posted a short video uh, being shot from the inside, I think, of the laundry room out to the garage where there was this big, massive dresser drawers in the back of the pickup. And he was saying, hey, this is what, how powerlifters move. So normally two people would do it. And he went and he you know, got the thing and he came in and he slid through the door and, and went in. And I was like, ah, that's my boy. <laughs> Good, not that I can do that. But, but all that to say, that's all well and fine. Samson, Samson ripped a lion apart with his bare hands. Samson killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Samson took the gates and the post of the gate of Gaza, which probably weighed somewhere from 5,000 to 10,000 pounds. When I was in Israel, I saw what those gates looked like, put it on his shoulder and carried it some 25 to 35 miles up to the top of a mountain. These are tremendous elements, tremendous feats of strength that were based on his faith in the Lord. Now, having said that, when we understand Samson, if we read the story, he was perhaps even more of a flawed example than even Barak and Gideon. He had an eye for women that he should not have an eye for. He betrayed the Lord's trust and basically ended up having his eyes gouged out by the Philistines and being made a mockery of them. We'll come back to that again when we get into the acts of valor, his final act of valor. But we move to the fourth judge. After Samson, there's Jephthah. And in a book of, in some ways, poor examples, uh, the author of Hebrews says perhaps the poorest example for the end, because we remember Jephthah for a foolish, rash, horrific vow that he needlessly made, which would be end up in sacrificing his very daughter. Yet, Jephthah was Israel's champion against the Ammonites. And we can read of him in Judges 11 and 12. And in fact, what's interesting, similar to Gideon, when God first tells Jephthah in Judges 11, 1, that he is to be God's chosen judge and champion of the nation, he calls him also a valiant warrior. 
the situation in Judges was no bueno. It was bad. In Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. This was the pre-monarchy period. There was no king in Israel because everyone did what? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. One point from this, beloved, is to God, according to the wisdom of God, no government is worse than a bad government. As difficult as it might be for us to consider this, government is actually, the institution of government is a gift from God to sinful man to put order and to prevent anarchy and chaos. Well, those are the judges. We move from the judges to the king or the kings, from the period of the judges to the period of the kings and the prophet. It's a singular king here, David, because David at the human level stands at the head of the kings. Again, at the human level, the monarchy is defined by David and for David. In verse 32, the fifth entry, the specific name is of David. And we can read of David in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, for example. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. And then in verse 13, same chapter, 1 Samuel 16, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that would be David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now, David had many conquests, many different episodes of heroism. He also had horrific sins, the sin of adultery, the sin of murder. Yet even through this, God, as you may know, describes David as a man after his own Heart. David's most famous battle was the mano a mano, hand-to-hand, one-on-one combat in a battle of champions with the giant Goliath. And we read that in 1 Samuel 17. Uh, Goliath was a giant that was somewhere around 10 feet tall. The armor that Goliath wore was around 150 pounds. The very tip of the spear that Goliath carried, the tip itself was about 15 pounds, the weight of a shot put. But what's fascinating, beloved, in 1 Samuel 17, the great contrast is not between David and Goliath. The great contrast of God's lesson to the original nation of Israel and to you and to me is between David and Saul because Saul's life was characterized by fear. He was a fearful man. David's life generally was characterized by courage which is even right at the heartbeat of what the author of Hebrews is bringing out here. Even when we think of this battle of champions, Saul was king, so he should have been the one to fight Goliath. We read earlier in 1 Samuel that Saul was a very tall man. He was from the shoulders up, taller than anyone in Israel. So if it's a measure of stature, that's another reason why he should have fought Goliath. But again, he was a fearful man, and he listened to the whining of other fearful man. And so because of that, because King Saul was weak and cowardly, so also the nation of Israel was weak and cowardly. 1 Samuel 13, verse 7, all the people followed him trembling. And just a brief application from this point, beloved, you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, we want to tell people about Christ. But why would they listen to our witness, if our life is characterized by anxiety and fear. I understand that things can be difficult, the loss of job. We look at the radical devolution and the degradation and the wickedness of society, and we can have a temptation to be despondent. But, beloved, the victory belongs to the Lord. He will carry our burdens. And those truths need to buttress us and strengthen us and invigorate us, even in difficult times, for the witness of Christ. You see, back here in the example, Saul focused on the size of the giant. David focused on the size of God. And we can see that in chapter 17, verses 32 and forward. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him, that's Goliath. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. 
Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth. Well, he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he's taunted the armies of the living God. And then verse 37, it's key. David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You see, it's a pretty amazing feat for even a, a ruddy, strong youth like David to kill both a bear and a lion with what they had back there. But did you see, he gives credit where credit is due. He gives glory where glory is due. The Lord delivered me from the paw of the bear. The Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion. You see, David is a man of courage because David is a man of faith. That's the point that we read in 1 Samuel 17, and that's why the author of Hebrews cites him. And the result, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, at the end of the period of the judges, and at the beginning of 1 Samuel, Israel is a loosely organized federation of weak territories, barely able to keep the Philistines and other enemies at bay. By the end of 2 Samuel, under the leadership and inspiration of David, Israel is the most powerful kingdom in the region under his leadership. So judges, kings, finally prophets. And at the end of verse 32, with the sixth and final example by name, the author moves from the first among kings, David, to the first among the prophets, Samuel. He says, and Samuel and the prophets. Now pause there for a second. So before Samuel, there were prophets. Abel, we know from Luke, was a prophet. Noah was a prophet. He had a 120-year-long sermon by building the ark. Moses was a prophet, but uniquely Samuel was the first in a line of a continuous stream of prophets. And Samuel's massively important. He's the link between the judges and the monarchy, and he's the first of the prophets. He was actually the last of the judges. In 1 Samuel uh, 7, I think around verse 32, it says Samuel judged Israel. So Samuel was the last of the judges, and he was the first of this continuous stream of prophets. He's been called by some pastors, some commentators, God's emergency man. Like Samson, Samuel was a Nazarite who took the vow of the Nazarite. And we don't have time, but I would commend to you, go and read 1 Samuel 1 and 2, because Samuel was a product of a godly woman named Hannah. Hannah had a husband named Elkanah, and he loved her, but she was barren. And she was bemoaning the fact that she couldn't bear children. Her husband loved her. He said, am I not better to you than ten sons? But Hannah went to the Lord, petitioned to the Lord, and God heard her godly prayer and opened her womb, and she gave birth to a son she named Samuel, meaning Elohim, God has heard. God has heard me. Beautiful, beautiful story. And as for Samuel himself, even when he was a child, his faith was stronger than the priest Eli. Samuel had an intensity of faith and an integrity of faith. And he began, as I indicated, a continuous steam of prophets in Israel. Elijah, Elisha, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the list goes on. These are the men of valor that the author brings to your attention in verse 32. In verses 33 and 34, he moves to their acts of valor that are enshrined in Scripture. There are nine that we see here in three groups of three. We see acts of valor of national advancement, personal deliverance, and martial conquest. First, national advancement at the beginning of verse 33. And these are basically where the weaker forces of God's people were empowered by God through faith to overcome the enemies of Israel and God. Look at the beginning of verse 33. It says, who by faith conquered kingdoms. 
by faith. This is the last appearance of in English that two-word phrase by faith. Um, it's, it's technical, but the by faith that we've seen again and again, by faith Abel, by faith Enoch, by faith Noah, all the way up to by faith Rahab, it's a slightly different form. It's one word in the original Greek. It's a noun plus in the dative form. This is a slightly different form, which tells us two things. It says that Rahab the harlot was the last entry of that individual example with that unique by faith. But it's the same dynamic here. By faith, they conquered kingdoms. And we could, in one way, say the beginning of the conquering of kingdoms of the people of God for the glory of God began with the conquering of Sihon, who was the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan, in Numbers 21. We could think of Joshua, whom we've looked at in Hebrews before, and the great conquests that he did on behalf of the Lord. David himself in 2 Samuel, if you're still in 1 Samuel, or you can listen, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, this is what the word of God reads. When the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to seek out David. And when David heard of it, he went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines came and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. Then David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? You see, David doesn't presume. He has God's wind beneath his wings, so to speak, but he doesn't continually to presuppose and just expect that the past results will mean the same thing for the future. He inquires of the Lord. We could, speaking a little out of sequence from a time standpoint of revelation but in line of the sermon last week he goes and sits at the feet of Jesus to listen to the counsel of the word of God and God answers him and the Lord said to David verse 19 go up for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand so David came to Baal Perazim and defeated them there and he said the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of waters. Again, David gives glory where glory is due. He was the tip of the spear of God at the human level, but he does not pat himself on the back. He gives the glory to the Lord where it belongs. Uh, King Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, righteous King Josiah, all would be under this category of conquering kingdoms. The author moves on, verse 33, they performed righteousness. Uh, the New American Standard, if you have it, they added the two words, performed acts of righteousness. I like it. I think it reads better in the original. They performed righteousness. They executed justice. They established, imagine this, just governments. Samuel did this. In 1 Samuel 12, 4, the people of Israel said to Samuel, You've not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. David, in 2 Samuel 8, 15, we read, David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. We don't have time to go there, but King Josiah, young King Josiah, was a tremendous exemplar of faithfulness and of righteousness. You can read of him in 2 Kings 22, verses or excuse me, 2 Kings 22 and 23. Um, I do want to go for a moment to Zechariah, to the post-exilic prophet Zechariah, who's giving a prophecy. I want to just for a moment pause and jump forward to the one to whom all of this points, which is the risen, reigning, righteous domain and reign of Jesus Christ. In Zechariah chapter 8, He's describing what life will be like at the return of Christ, what life will be like in the millennium. Zechariah 8, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age. And I love verse 5. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it's too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, watch this, in truth and righteousness. This is the reign of righteousness and the domination of truth. That is what the world will look like when Christ is reigning here with a rod of iron in grace and in mercy and with the rod of iron of justice and that's what God calls all of us to strive towards even now and that's certainly what he worked in the nation of Israel that he's describing here so they conquered kingdoms they performed righteousness continuing 11 verse 33 Hebrews they obtained promises we've seen promises 14 times in the book of Hebrews we see the word promise Five out of those 14 times, the word promise appears in chapter 11. Most of the previous ones were referring to the promise, the promises that were given to Abraham. But Abraham was the first in a long line of spiritual heirs. They obtained promises. That's the national advancement of the nation of Israel. Then the author moves to the personal deliverance, the personal redemption, the personal rescue from danger. Continuing in verse 33, they shut the mouths of lions. Uh, We already read how David killed, even as a youth, killed a lion when the lion tried to take its sheep. Samson, we also cited, ripped apart a lion with his bare hands. Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, killed a lion in a snowy pit, according to 1 Corinthians 11. But When we think of a man who by faith shut the mouth of a lion, who comes first to mind? Of course, Daniel. Daniel was thrown into the pit of starving, hungry lions. He is the example par excellence of one who shut the mouth of a lion by faith. And that's why Daniel said to the king in Daniel 6.22, after the king discovered that he was alive, he said, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they've not harmed me. The author of Hebrews continues from the lions to the quenching the power of fire. And this would probably bring to mind Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who would not bend the knee to the king, but would instead worship only God. And so the king had them thrown into a burning furnace that was heated seven times its normal heat. It was heated so strongly that even the guards that threw them into the fire were consumed by the fire. But I love what Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah said. Daniel 3, verse 17, and in such an incredibly powerful statement, they said this. They said, Daniel 3, 17, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18, but if not, Let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Again, I love, they, they believe in the power of God. But if not, that's the pivot point. That's the test of true faith. We don't know the will of God in this. We don't know if that cancer is going to go into full remission or consume to the point of going home to be with the Lord. But if not, we will serve the Lord. Beloved, that is the point. That is the hinge of real faith. So they shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. The author continues, verse 34, Hebrews 11, they escaped the edge of the sword. Whether we think of David, who escaped the edge of the mighty giant Goliath's sword, or even then later continually escaped the sword of King Saul, who was seeking his life. Elijah was delivered from the wicked queen Jezebel. Elisha was delivered from the wicked king of Israel, Jehoram. Jeremiah 
was rescued and escaped the edge of the sword of the wicked king of Judah, Jehoiakim, God told Jeremiah, for example, Jeremiah 39, verse 18, listen to this, God speaking to Jeremiah, I will certainly rescue you, and you will not fall by the sword, but you will have your own life as booty because you have trusted in me, declares the Lord. So national advancement, personal deliverance. Finally, there's martial conquest at the end of verse 34. And I love how God, through the author, opens up this dimension of martial conquest. He says, from weakness, we're made strong. We're made powerful. The Greek word translated strong here is dunamis. It's the same word as power. In fact, it's the same word that we saw earlier in Hebrews chapter 11, back in Hebrews 11, verse 11, by faith Sarah herself received power, received dunamis, received strength to conceive. So from Sarah's weakness of barrenness came the strength by faith to conceive. And all of these men of valor, and even the women of valor, so also is from their weakness that were made strong. And some of the greatest prayers in the Bible we've skimmed over. Samson, we don't have time to go back there, but Judges 16, verses 27 and 30, if you know the story, you'll remember that Samson committed great sin and many great sins. One of them finally caught up to him, and with this foreign wife that he shouldn't have taken in the first place, he divulged to her the strength, the, the uh, source behind his faith of his Nazarite vow. She cut his hair. He lost his strength. The Philistines captured him. They gouged out his eyes. They put him in the temple of Dagon, and they were mocking him. There were some, I think, I think a thousand or three thousand Philistines in the temple of Dagon mocking Samson. And in a final act of faith, he cried out to the Lord, in essence saying, Lord, restore my strength one last time to avenge my eyes and to avenge your name. And God heard him, gave him strength one last time, and he tore apart the pillars and brought down the temple of Dagon on the enemies of God. And at the end of the verse, it tells us that he killed more of the enemies of God in that one act than he had killed in his entire life. Out of his weakness, he was made strong. King Hezekiah, a righteous king, was told at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 38 that he had a mortal illness, and God directly told him that you will soon pass away and enter into my, you will soon pass away. Hezekiah cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, give me 15 more years to rule your nation, 15 more years to do your work. God heard his prayer, and out of his weakness made him strong for 15 more years years. Esther, Queen Esther, in Esther, the book of Esther, chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, Uncle Mordecai tells Esther when the people of Israel are, are being threatened with extermination at the nefarious plot of the man Haman, Mordecai, Uncle Mordecai, tells Esther, who knows whether or not you've attained royalty for an occasion such as this. And she puts together her idea that she'll go to the king which is outside the law of the Lord and she says in verse 14 or 15 or verse 16 of chapter 4 of Esther that I don't know whether or not I will live I may sacrifice my life for going outside the boundary of the law but I will do this thing for the preservation of my people again Esther didn't presume on what God's unrevealed will would be but she demonstrated great courage that is born out of faith. Out of her weakness, she became strong. Paul said, of course, in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, God has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So from weakness, they are made strong. Verse 34, Hebrews 11, they became mighty in war. Many, many examples. We can think of perhaps David's mighty men. And my favorite of David's mighty men was the chief, Joshabashabeth. 2 Samuel 23, 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshabashabeth, a Tachamanite, chief of the captains. He was called Adino the Ezrite because of 800 slain by him at one time. Or you can think of King Asa, who went up against a million in 2 Corinthians 
14. Or Jehoshaphat's, King Jehoshaphat's great prayer in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. O our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, watch this, but our eyes are on you. Beloved, that is always the case. In times of difficulty, in times of conflict, our eyes are on the Lord. They put foreign armies to fight, to flight. Excuse me, they put foreign armies to flight. And this is the one, the Greek words the author of Hebrews uses here, these unique Greek words he uses here, were used very often and very frequently in the extra-biblical book of 1 Maccabees to describe the time of revolt under Judas the Hammer Maccabeus, who was in between the time of Malachi and the coming of Christ. Judas the Hammer Maccabeus took the chief Idumean city of Hebron in 165 B.C., and he defeated the Syrians under Antiochus Epiphanes in 164 B.C. and rededicated the temple in Jerusalem. All that to say, it's very possible the author of Hebrews has this in mind as he's given this word of exhortation to this group of Jewish Christians. Beloved, all of these people, all these men and women understood what Jonathan Saul's son, Jonathan, David's friend, Jonathan, said to the young man in 1 Samuel 14, 6. Jonathan said this to the young man who was carrying his armor. Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. Watch this. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few because the battle belongs to the Lord. Beloved, These are men of valor. These are acts of valor. The woman of valor, again, we won't cover this at all now, but the author does save the best for last at the beginning of verse 35. The most striking example of the power of faith, where at the beginning of verse 35, women receive back their dead by resurrection. Beloved, dear friend, only God can defeat death. He saves the best for last before he makes that giant pivot from the triumphs of faith to the tribulations of faith. The danger for you and me is that our faith would end halfway through verse 35. But if not, like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that is the hinge of faith. Beloved, that is where our faith goes. That is where our heart must go. That is where our trust must go in Christ, in God. No matter what may come towards us, are we satisfied in the Lord? Are we content in the Lord? Are we the Lord's champions for his glory? Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the message of salvation, which was the same as you are yesterday, today, and forever. We are saved by faith. We are saved by believing you, by believing in you, and by believing you, by believing what you tell us in scripture as you show us yourself, as you show us ourselves, and as you show us our Savior. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of salvation. Be glorified in all that we do. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.